This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, as Russia suffers setbacks in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin met with China's President Xi Jinping for the first time since the start of the war. And China is accelerating its space program and could overtake the U.S. in space dominance. It's something that could have ramifications for the U.S. here on Earth. Then, competing on the global stage, what critical investments the government needs to make now to maintain leadership. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Russian leader Vladimir Putin recently met with China's President Xi Jinping in Uzbekistan, with China's leader expressing, quote, concerns and questions about the war. Elizabeth Wishnik is a senior research scientist at CNA. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So the tone of this meeting was much different than the last time they met in February, because at that time, the two said that there was, quote, a no-limits friendship. So this latest meeting signals there maybe are limits to that friendship. Well, I think we, we previously misunderstood what no limits meant. It didn't mean that there were no parameters to this partnership. It was a way that the Chinese officials uh, found to avoid uh, discussing the, the prospect of an alliance. So the, the point of no limits was that, uh, that there were no uh, there were no restrictions on what could take place in, in within the context of the relationship, so it was not necessary to create a formal alliance. But that didn't mean that they didn't have their areas where they agreed to disagree. Uh, so I think we're just uh, confronting some of those areas in this latest meeting. So she didn't mention Ukraine in any of his public remarks. Is this surprising? And what does that say about how China views the war? Well, I mean, to get back to your earlier question about the questions and concerns, we don't know what those refer to. Um, he could have been concerned that, uh, that Putin was facing losses on the battlefield or could resort to the use of tactical nuclear weapons or was facing greater domestic opposition. So just because he had questions and concerns doesn't mean that he is changing his line on, uh, on the war. Uh, because just a few days before she traveled to Uzbekistan, um, the number three leader in China had uh, met with Russian officials and told them that China supported Russia's uh, priorities in Ukraine. Um, and now we have a, a, a Russian official in China uh, discussing various strategic issues. So I think it's premature to say that, that uh, China has shifted its position on Ukraine. And also, um, the February 4th agreement uh, didn't discuss Ukraine either. Uh, so, so I think uh, it's a sensitive issue for China, and they don't tend to include it in, in all public comments. Elizabeth, both leaders at the, at the summit talked about the world order. How would you say their views differ about that? Uh, well, China made a point of saying that it wanted to be a force for stability. And so I think that was a, a veiled a criticism 
of Putin's approach to Ukraine, because uh, China wants to play a role in global governance as a rule maker and wants to be seen as a, as a, a partner in that respect. And so uh, we see China trying to be the adult in the room in a way uh, in, in terms of, of global order, making that claim. In the February 4th statement, we, we saw uh, some differences too, because uh, Russia has, has a preference for a world order that would be multipolar, where it would play a, 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 an important and equal role with other major countries, while China has, under Xi Jinping, has, has uh, developed a concept of community of common destiny. Um, and there would be a leader of this community, presumably, and that could be China. And Russia has, has been somewhat uncomfortable with that approach um, in terms of how, uh, you know, how the global community would be organized. But I think they do share a vision of a world that's uh, safe for authoritarian regimes, and they, are, they do share certain common approaches that we have seen in the United Nations and in terms of uh, creating uh, some new norms of behavior like uh, internet sovereignty, where uh, the, the principle for uh, information would be that, that states can control the flow of information rather, rather than having a free flow of information. Elizabeth, I wonder how much uh, power and influence President Xi has over Putin. Would he be able to say to him, you know, cut it out, enough's enough, end the war? Um, I don't think he could do that. I, I, first, for a number of reasons. First, the two countries have long stated their their view of non-interference in the affairs of other states. And by other states, they mean authoritarian states. So I think she wouldn't take kindly if Putin said, you know, cut it out in Xinjiang or, or uh, stop threatening Taiwan. So I, I don't think that, uh, that uh, she could do that about Ukraine. And, and I think also that, that she agrees with Putin to the extent that uh, th that he sees NATO and the U.S. as the key uh, as a key threat to China. And well, well, I want to ask you about India then, because India's leader Modi said publicly to Putin, "Quote: Today's era is not an era of war." And I have spoken to you on the phone about this. Is this a shift for India? Well, he said that, but he's still uh, buying a lot of oil from from Russia, and he his India participated for the first time in the. Vostok military exercises in eastern Russia um, uh, early September. So I think he he might have been more forthright in, in his criticism, but we we're not going to. I don't think we're going to see a, a major distancing of India from from Russia either. And Elizabeth, finally, you know, this meeting also marked Xi's first foreign trip since the start of the pandemic. How significant is that? What message is he sending? But I think it was interesting that he picked Central Asia as, as his first destination. And the first country he visited was Kazakhstan, which is where he unveiled his Belt and Road Initiative in, in 2013. And so uh, I, I think we might see China trying to play a bigger role in Central Asia, which has always been a sensitive issue between China and Russia. Elizabeth, we're out of time, though. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming up next on Government Matters, China is increasingly becoming a competitor to the U.S.'s space dominance, despite investing far less money in its programs.
We'll be right back. NASA plans to launch its Artemis rocket to the moon after several delays due to technical problems. It comes after China announced it discovered a new lunar mineral. Arthur Herman is a senior fellow with the Hudson Institute. Arthur, welcome back to the program. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Should the U.S. be concerned about this latest discovery? Well, I'm concerned in the sense that um, if these reports are true, and if it is the fact that China has, in fact, discovered significant deposits of a um, uh, of a mineral which is supposed to be and is, it is assumed to be very helpful uh, uh, to developing nuclear fusion power, in other words, of using and developing the same kind of nuclear fusion that powers the sun, an almost un unlimited source of of energy, if it's true that the Chinese have pulled this off, and you always have to be careful with Chinese claims about big discoveries or big inventions and so on. But if they have, then I think it is a worrying, uh, worrisome issue because China has, in the last year or so, begun to lay claim to uh, moon in the way that they did to the South China Sea a decade ago, which is step by step, uh, encroaching upon uh, the moon's uh, surface, uh, developing a, a, a and conditioning people to think of the moon as a Chinese uh, province for exploration, for exploitation of minerals and so on. And our space program, uh, which you know got to the moon uh, a number of years ago, uh, needs to really think about what our strategic goals are here vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese. So, so, Arthur, would you say we're in the middle of a new space race, this time with China? I think we very much are, and we really have been um, over the last decade and a half, I would say, ever since China first demonstrated uh, the capability of blowing up satellites using an anti-satellite kill vehicle, which means they could pose a direct threat to our GPS system, for example, to our telecommunications satellites that our military and intelligence services rely on. And uh, in the last decade and a half, while we've been kind of sitting still um, and allowing our government institutions to sort of conduct themselves like NASA uh, as business as usual, the Chinese are sprinting ahead. So and what that's something which has huge implications for uh, our great power uh, competition with China. So what is China's space strategy? Can you can you spell that out for us? Sure. Their space strategy is to uh, make space a domain in which China plays the key role, both as an economic power, in other words, the enormous growth of space as a commercial uh, and economic sector, but also to become the dominant player in space in terms of scientific and technology advances, as well as in the strategic realm, which means basically being able to make China the power that controls access to and use of space for other nations, including, including the United States. So they have a big strategy. Right now, we don't. And that's going to be one of the big drawbacks that we're going to have if we're going to be able to compete effectively in this new space race. So the, the U.S. is spending nearly $50 billion a year on its space right. programs, much more than China's nearly $10 billion. 
How is that? Are they just getting a lot more bang for their buck? I think they are, and also they're making up for lost ground. Um, you know, you have to understand that China's commercial space sector, which is growing by leaps and bounds, um, is one that is uh, completely fused with and totally subordinate to China's military and intelligence services. So that what happens in terms of space launches, exploration of the moon, for example, China is the first country to land a lunar explorer on the dark side of the moon. We could have done it, but we never saw the point of it. China does. It's part of their overall strategy uh, to, 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 to leap ahead in these kinds of capabilities. That with all of that, all of that coherent uh, thrust to what China is doing in space and an overall goal, every mission, every launch uh, plays a part in how China sees itself as the great dominant power in space. And we're just beginning to realize our federal government officials are beginning to realize that if we don't start restart and take seriously what's happening in space and America's enormous capabilities and unleash those capabilities, then China could well achieve its goal. And that is to become the dominant power. The latest report on our science and uh, industrial base, which I talked about in my Wall Street Journal article that ran a week ago, uh, says that if nothing changes, China could well be the dominant power in space by 2032. That should worry everybody. So let's talk recommendations. I mean, what does the U.S. need to do to strengthen its space program? Well, one thing it doesn't need is more money, I think, at this point. Um, as I say, the, the budgets are large. Also, the industrial base that we have. I mean, no other country has the kind of capabilities uh, to launch satellites, to build new satellites, to conduct all kinds of uh, economic activities in space. But what we need to do is to find a way to harness that capability, harness that intel that, that know-how, uh, that commercial drive and energy to a larger national strategic goal. And right now we have two great agencies. We have Space Force, which is the Department of Defense's focus on space as a strategic domain set up in 2019. We've got NASA, which has traditionally been the U.S. leader, government's leader in space exploration and, and in space launches and, and space sector. But these two institutions, one civilian, one military, need to be brought together as one in, in terms of a, not, a, not as a single agency, but as two parts of an overarching strategy. All that's right. where you need to go. It's not about money. It's about political will. It's about leadership. And that's the next step that we need to pursue. All right, Arthur, thanks so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here again. And it's not just space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the U.S. is facing increasing competition when it comes to technology here on Earth. An expert explains the risks of falling behind and how you, the U.S. can better support innovation. To maintain leadership on the global stage, the U.S. must make investments in critical technologies. That's according to Jennifer Buss. She's CEO of the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies. Jen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. So what are the areas most critical for the U.S. to compete globally? So the technology areas that we at the Potomac Institute have been studying um, lead to uh, 
the United States not only competing, but having to cooperate in this global environment. Um, we talk a couple technologies, specifically uh, semiconductors or microelectronics, and those are closely tied to critical minerals. Uh, we look at space as um, not just access to, but what do we put in space? Uh, energy is another major component to uh, critical technology that we wanna be self-reliant on uh, as much as possible, as well as um, the healthcare industry is, is another major component of, of looking at United States uh, competition. So let's drill down on uh, one of those things that you mentioned, which is the microelectronics and the critical minerals. Where is the U.S. now globally, and what's the risk, Jen, for falling behind in global competition? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, the United States is uh, leading the uh, discovery and development of new electronics and new paradigms. Most of the production is overseas, which puts the United States at risk of not having access to those technologies, uh, not only for defense purposes and, and federal government use, but also for all of our commercial companies that are here in the United States. So what about in the space arena then? Both China and Russia are making advances. What is most concerning to you in space competition? So actually my biggest concern about space is not launch, right? We have US companies now that are, are taking us back to space. It's not production. We're able to produce the satellites and the rockets and the things that we wanna to take to space. It's actually in what we do with the information that we gather from our space expeditions. Uh, and so I'd like to see more of an investment in autonomous solutions um, or machine learning, AI, uh, to really help with that data integration and, and turning that data for, into information and into knowledge that we can do something with it. So then what's, what are the recommendations that you have to really fully take advantage of American space capabilities? That's, a, I love these questions, thank you. <laughs> um, so I'd really like to see investments in uh, what consumers or people typically talk about as artificial intelligence. I'd like to see more from the Space Force of thinking how they're going to integrate space capabilities uh, to be able to help national security um, and the, the each of the different services that are relying on Space Force to provide that type of analysis and, and pushing out that data. And going back to the um, early parts of the coronavirus pandemic, that really revealed issues with the medical supply and health technologies. What were the problems there and what are your recommendations? Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, the height of the pandemic or maybe at the very beginning of the pandemic, we recognized that we didn't have the, the medical devices that we needed here in the United States. Uh, we didn't have any of the medications that we necessarily needed. And so when countries started shutting down, uh, we, the, we, the United States population, were at risk of losing access to hundreds of generic medications that were being produced in China. The United States currently continues to lead in the research and development of new pharmaceuticals. And we, we send to other companies and other countries to produce those for us because it's cheaper. Um, and so that was one of the major things that was highlighted is that while we were able to retool the facilities here in the United States to produce the machines that we needed, the capabilities that we needed, 
Um, we weren't necessarily able to quickly pivot and reproduce all of those generic drugs here on shore. However, you'll notice with the pandemic that we were able to create whole new facilities to produce vaccines. And so with additional investments in that influx of money, um, there is a, a true opportunity to start from the ground up and produce those things here in-house. And when we talk about global competition, we need to talk about education. And your institute did some studies around that and found that the number of STEM graduates percentage-wise is dropping considerably compared to the rest of the world. Give us an idea of the current situation and what can be done to reverse that. Yeah, so what you'll see is that the number of students overall in graduate programs has significantly increased over the last 60 years. Uh, of those percentage-wise, the United States um, is sending more grad, sending more total number of graduates, but a percentage-wise, we're, we're smaller and smaller. However, you see that students from all over the world are still coming to the United States because we are number one in most of those graduate programs, and they want to be taught here before they either stay or they go uh, back home to their native country. So a couple of things can be done. One, we're in a, a, a high-talent a hiring crisis right now across multiple industries where there aren't enough people to fill the jobs. And so if we're training people here in, in those education programs in the United States, we'd really like to be able to uh, keep them here so we can change our immigration and visa policies. Uh, we can look at K through 12 and understanding how to make a more robust critical thinking population. Uh, so they don't necessarily have to have a complete STEM background. They need to have an appreciation for it. And we don't want everybody to only be math and science focused. They need to be well-rounded, right? So there's a balance there of understanding uh, people and understanding how they can work together and what education level they really need to be at to be a, a, a technical uh, part of the workforce. All right. Well, Jen, I appreciate you being on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.